0: I'm very happy now to welcome to the Radio Café, John McWhorter. He's a linguist. He's a professor at Columbia University. His most recent book is The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language. Welcome to the Radio Café. Thank you. So in your book, The Language Hoax, you do something that I really appreciate, namely, you take something that I didn't even realize I had assumed to be true, and you challenge it. And what you're challenging is the proposition that we human beings see the world through the lens of the language we speak, lens being the operative metaphor. Give us a sense of that school of thought that, for example, native English speakers see the world differently from native Chinese speakers or native Navajo speakers.
1: Yeah. And it's this idea that really gets around. It's very attractive. You like the idea that the grammar of the language that you speak channels your thoughts in a certain way. And yet, if you are a linguist and you just happen to know your way around a lot of languages, that doesn't mean you know them, but you know your way around them, you realize that that whole idea doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And linguists say this among themselves all the time, but I thought there needed to be a book that explained in accessible terms why it's not true that The way your verbs work and the way your nouns work channels the way you think and makes you go through life with a different pair of glasses than other people. And that's what the language hoax was about.
0: It turns out that the idea that you are challenging in the language hoax isn't really that old an idea. It's a 20th century idea that's rooted in at least partly in in racial and ethnic politics of the time, Tell us a little bit about that, about Benjamin Lee Whorf and his work and what it was trying to do.
1: Well, the idea begins at a time different from this one, when especially Western academics, even though they were academics, tended to think that to be a Western person was to be enlightened and to be advanced, and that then most of the world was inhabited by primitive tribespeople. And the idea among both educated and uneducated people was that there were these primitive languages that these primitive people spoke. But there were linguists and anthropologists noticing that, really, if you look at what the language of, say, an Australian Aboriginal group is, or if you look at a Native American language, if anything, those languages are more complicated than what we think of as a normal language like English and French. So Benjamin Lee Whorf actually wasn't a linguist. He was a fire inspector by day. But uh, he was very taken by what Native American languages are like. And he specialized, after a fashion, in the Hopi language. And he was devoted to showing that not only is the Hopi language as sophisticated as a Western language, but in some ways it's more sophisticated and more to the point, it's different. It's not lesser. It's just different. So he liked an idea that Hopi doesn't have any markings or sense that if you're speaking Hopi, it distracts you from thinking about the past, the present, and the future. And he thought that that corresponded to Hopi cosmology, cyclical sense of how time works. And what he was doing was trying to reverse a sense that even the enlightened person of the period had, had that primitive people. For one thing, there were people you could call primitive and that these so-called primitive people spoke primitive languages. So that's where it starts. And so he starts in the 30s. He was apparently a good speaker. He actually didn't live long, but that idea that your language gives you a different way of processing the world held on and was taken up by a lot of scholars after that, and that idea is still cherished to this day.
0: Now, part of what he was doing does seem really like a valuable contribution, namely putting to rest the idea that languages of people different from ourselves are necessarily primitive or simpler than English or European languages.
1: Very much so. And so I do not think of Benjamin Lee Whorf as a problem or as somebody who needs to be recreationally contradicted. But the truth of the matter is that even though it's true that Native American languages and Australian Aboriginal languages do tend to be more complex than languages like English and French and Spanish, at least in many ways. Really, Hopi, for example, does have markers of sense. People who've looked at Hopi afterwards have shown that to speak Hopi is not to be discouraged from thinking about the fact that there's a past, a present, and a future. it would be hard to say that there's much about Hopi that would give you a different way of processing life. And in general, if you look at languages and how they differ from one another, the idea that they correspond to what their speakers' thoughts are like, and by extension that would mean what their speakers' cultures are like, you find that it just it doesn't hold up. And so we want to think that the Burmese language must somehow reflect something about being Burmese. Now, in terms of the words for things in Burmese culture, of course, but in terms of how Burmese verbs work, and in terms of how Burmese happens to divide the basic concepts of the world up. Burmese is grammar. the profit would be hard to learn. That it corresponds to being Burmese, it doesn't, and that's true for all of the other 5,999 languages in the world. And so that truth needs to be told, because I think that today we can keep two things in our brains. One is that there is no such thing by a long shot as a primitive language, but that two, really, languages have a lot more in common then they are different. And even where they're different, it doesn't correspond to anything about the people who speak them.
0: Right. It does perhaps correspond to the differences in their experience. I mean, the cliche about people in snowy cultures mm-hmm. having more words for snow or more kind yeah. of differentiation. We've got more differentiation in words about, let's say, computers or whatever, which sure. we use all the time. But exactly. those those don't correspond, well, what, what, what is the significance of, of differences in vocabulary?
1: Oh, yeah. And so, of course, a language has words for the things that are important to its speaker. And so, for example, the street myth was that the Inuit languages have hundreds of different words for snow. Then that was knocked down, especially by the excellent linguist and friend of mine, Jeff Fulham, who claims that that's not true at all. The actual truth, according to some people, is that they do have more ordinary words for snow than somebody does who's in Florida. And, you know, there's a reason. They live in snow. And so, of course, a language has words for the things that the speaker's consider important, just like in English we have lots of words for computers. But what Worf's idea was about was something more abstract than that. It was the sort of thing that you wouldn't naturally think of. And so, of course, a language where it's spoken by people who live in the snow is going to have more words for snow than ours will. That's not hard. We would just assume that was true. But when it gets down to something more abstract, such as this language doesn't mark the future tense, and that means that its people don't think much about the future, or another way that people have of looking at languages without future tense is that it must make people think of the future more to not have a future tense. Believe it or not, that has actually been positive. That's where Worf's idea runs aground, in abstract ways, in terms of how you conjugate your verb, in terms of whether your language assigns a gender to objects for no particular reason. None of that gives you a different way of experiencing life in the way that the strong form of the Whorf hypothesis implies.
0: When I was a kid, the standard pronoun was he, and the standard word to denote a person was man, and there is an argument that this kind of grammar helped generations of girls to internalize sexism and assume that men would go where no man has gone before, and that it wouldn't Mm -hmm. necessarily be women.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that there was an awful lot of culture that helped to encourage those thoughts as well. You could change something like that, and we're trying to do it, for example, by saying she instead of he as much as possible, or saying he and she, etc. But of course, one notices that those changes in the pronouns, they help nudge thought along, but it's really society as itself, the culture as itself, thought as itself, that has to change in ways more significant than what changes in pronouns can do before anything really happens. And so notice, for example, that one thing to say he, she, or to alternate between he and she, or to say she, when what you might really be thinking is he. But to the extent that they, when used in the singular, as in tell each student that they can hand in their paper when they want to, the extent that that gets brought up, most people resist it. Most people decide that that's wrong. And the idea is that it's grammatically wrong because they is supposed to be plural. Right. But the truth is, people have been using they that way all the time. People resist it, even though they is doing exactly what a lot of us wish our actual culture reflected. It's the culture that has changed. The language really just kind of drags along behind us.
0: We're talking to linguist John McWhorter. I was thinking about this whole idea of a worldview, and the idea that language shapes worldview implies, I think, on some level, that every speaker of whatever that language is, even has a shared worldview. And I think of, like I was thinking, imagine two classmates standing on a hill. One of them is a capitalist and one of them is an environmentalist, and they're looking at the landscape. They're both English speakers. They see the landscape entirely differently. There are different worldviews operating within language all the time.
1: Yeah, and what that means is that we have to be careful when we say that Language X affords its speakers a world view that's different from ours. I mean, it's it's attractive to hear that way of putting things. It's attractive to imagine that to speak the Japanese language gives you a different way of looking at the world because Japanese grammar has more markers for what the shape of things are than English does. You like that. And especially if it's a small, unknown group of people... We like the idea that their language might give them some sort of insight on something that we don't pay as much attention to, because we don't want to look down on people in other parts of the world. But the problem is, imagine somebody saying, okay, English lends its speakers a worldview because of the way its grammar is structured. And then you think about all the different kinds of people who speak English. So, for example, Mary Tyler Moore and Mahatma Gandhi spoke <laughs> English. Now, what is their shared worldview based on how English puts its nouns and its verbs together? Really, Gandhi's worldview was shaped rather significantly by the fact that he was from India, which is, is a culture, or many cultures. And I don't know much about Mary Tyler Moore, but you can assume that she was shaped rather profoundly by mid-20th century American culture. It was culture that made people different. And the idea that there's a worldview that the two of them share whatever it is, whatever Gandhi and Mary Tyler Moore have in common that makes them different from Gerard Depardieu and you know Vladimir Putin. It's something so insignificant that I'm not sure most of us would be terribly interested in it. There is no world view that English lends. Well, the facts are the same with any language.
0: Very interesting. Now, the subtitle of your book the world looks the same in any language. Do you think this applies to visual language? In other words, you know, I was thinking of like the, the great change that happened in Renaissance art when people started using different set of visual tools, namely Uh perspective. And so you have a medieval artist and a Renaissance artist might be looking at the same scene, very different result, very different art. Does Uh that speak to a different worldview? Well,
1: in terms of what language looks like, now we're talking about writing. And writing and speaking are very different things. And the truth is that language is a spoken thing. Language was spoken for a very long time before anybody invented something as peculiar as writing. And we talk much more than we write, except under extremely unusual conditions. But written language, nevertheless, is language. It is at the point where we are surrounded by a great deal of writing all the time with its different fonts and with, you know, the kinds of language that writing uses. But I would say that really in terms of impacting us in a cultural way, it's different kinds of speech that would be more important. And so, for example, over the past 50 years in America, non-standard language, whether that's in writing or speaking, has acquired a lot of purchase in the public space that it didn't have before. It used to be that you talked one way behind closed doors, but then if you were going to make a speech or if you were going to put something on a poster or if you were going to recite in school, you used a more formal language. That's changed a lot, especially since the 60s. And so informal language is now much more mainstream, much more accepted, much more a part of even the most official kind of stiff, itchy, closed circumstances. That's a big change in our culture at this point. I would say that's less about writing and about language in all of its forms, but it's definitely meaningful.
0: Have you had the experience of feeling, and it could be within English or it could be uh, English in another language, but feeling like a slightly different person when you're speaking a different language?
1: Yep, dumber. <laughs> to be honest, many people often say that they're different people in the langu- different languages that they speak. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that usually there's one language that you speak better than the other. And so naturally, you know, in the other one, you're going to feel different because maybe you're not your entire self, or maybe the way that you joke becomes different when you have 95% command of a language rather than 100. There's some of that. Then there's also the fact that if you speak three or four languages, generally... Each one of those languages corresponds to a different aspect of your life. So one of them is what your grandparents spoke. One of them is what you learned in school. One of them is something you picked up when you were doing X, Y, or Z. One of them was one that you learned much later. And so different contexts will be associated with that language. And so certainly you'll feel like a different person using that language then, too. But the fact that you feel like a different person using it is highly unlikely to be Because in one language, there's a certain kind of past tense conjugation, and then in another language, you have to assign gender that has no real meaning to objects. Those things don't make you feel different. Those things are just the wonderfully random and complicated differences that you see between languages, which are great in themselves. That's what linguists study. But those things don't correlate with culture in the way that we're often told.
0: Right, right. What... Do you think are, I mean, you, you call your book a manifesto, The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language. What's the manifesto part of it? What's the kind of like the political and social implications of what you're putting forward?
1: I call it a manifesto because, you know, to tell you the truth, there are people who get upset when the Warfian idea is challenged. There are many people who feel that if you don't think that a language channels the thoughts and the culture... Of the speakers, then you're devaluing the people. You're saying that their language doesn't have anything to do with what makes them interesting, which is not the case. And so I called it a manifesto not to sell books, but because it really is a dicey thing to say in certain settings. You know what? Languages are very different. That in itself is fascinating, but the fact that language X has meaningless gender. Doesn't mean that its speakers are walking around thinking of tables and you know shaving cream as gendered in the way that you know human beings and animals are, and so in writing the book I was facing a certain challenge in that I was aware that I was going to alienate a certain crowd of people, and you know it's already happened. I have read a couple of rather outraged reviews of the book from professional anthropologists, and they make some good points, but. A lot of the the outrage, the the peak at what technically is really just me questioning a paradigm, comes from the idea that to go with what Wolf was saying for many people is a way of indicating that you understand that all peoples of the world are equal. And you don't want to let go of that. And for many people, I think they're not quite sure why you should find languages interesting if you're not thinking of them as indexes of people's cultures and thoughts. And so in the book, I try to explain how language is really cool, even if we don't think of it that way, because there's so many ways that the whole Warphean paradigm, as it's often called, can lead you down blind alleys and can even condescend to and insult the people who you're trying to give a compliment to.
0: When I was thinking about this idea, why the world looks the same in any language, I was thinking that there's probably a way that you know, tennis players from any language group see the world much more the same. <laughs> Let's say Bulgarian and American tennis players will probably have more in common in the way they see the world than that Bulgarian tennis player and a Bulgarian <laughs> nuclear physicist.
1: Yeah. It's funny you say that because just now, and I kid you not, I was just having coffee with to Bulgarian people. <laughs> I swear that is actually the truth. And yes, frankly, tennis players of whatever nationality altogether certainly do have more in common than probably most Bulgarian individuals happen to have with the people they're with, unless they're good friends. And that's true in general. There are certainly, and I say in the book, cultural differences are real. So the idea is not that all people see the world in the same way. They most certainly don't, because we have this, wonderful array of different cultures in the world. My point is solely that language structure does not correlate with that wonderful cultural diversity. and In the same way, as we know that Bulgarians, while they speak the same language, and the two Bulgarians I was just with clearly were speaking the same language, are very different persons. And beyond certain superficial things, such as that they both grew up in Sofia, they both have memories of communism. It would be hard to say that the structure of their language is shaping how they think in any way that most of us would find very meaningful.
0: Right, right. John McWhorter is a linguist. He's a professor at Columbia University. His most recent book is The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language. John McWhorter, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: This program originally aired on KSFR Santa Fe Public Radio.